Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the music of Benjamin Dehart, Florida's cracker tenor. There's so much history within Florida that people just, they don't realize. We'll hear about catching baby alligators to sell to tourists in the 1930s and 40s. I would go out at night with a flashlight, and when I would find a little baby alligator, I'd catch it and bring it home. And we'll discuss the cigar industry of the late 1800s and early 1900s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the spring of 1864, not far from Cedar Creek, your brother sat on horseback as one began to speak. He spoke about old Lusty, how well the gray had done, but little did these brothers know the sorrow more to come So sing about a lusty and an ocean pond But remember these two brothers and what the war has done Swetson heard a rifle's crack as he turned his head he watched his brother Winston, he slumped and bowed his head. As a shock engulfed him, reality set in. A second shot had hit his spur as he dismounted then. That's Benjamin Dehart performing live at the Cowboy Heritage Festival held at Osceola Heritage Park in Kissimmee. He's singing about the Battle of Olusti, one of the Civil War conflicts that occurred in Florida. In the background, you can hear the cracking of whips as contestants warm up for a competition. He saw the look in Winston's eyes and knew what must be done. So he put Winston upon his own horse. And together off they run, together off they run. So sing about a lusty and of ocean pond. But remember these two brothers and what's As a kid growing up in the small farming community of Oxford, Florida, Benjamin Dehart played the auto harp and sang bluegrass music with his two brothers at local events. 
Today, Dehart plays guitar, Native American flutes, and sings with a lyrical tenor voice. Benjamin Dehart has become known as the Cracker Tenor, and his folk music focuses on Florida history, particularly cowboy culture. I'm originally from Florida. I'm a second-generation gener- uh, Floridian, and, and pretty much the way we look at it these days, if you're if you're born here and have some history, you're pretty much a, a cracker. Um, and I, I'm a tenor singer, so it, it was easy to put the moniker together and come up with that name. And it's getting to be recognized that way more so than my, my real name. The songs of Benjamin Dehart explore various aspects of cracker cowboy culture, Florida in the Civil War, the mistreatment of Native Americans in Florida, and other historical topics. It's something that needs to be known. There, there's so much history within Florida that people just, they don't realize. Uh, that We don't realize, a lot of people don't realize the fact that the, the Florida cattle, the industry, the cattle industry, started in the state of Florida. And there is, when it comes to the indigenous tribes, indigenous peoples of Florida, there's, there's, there's more history than just the Seminole Indians. They have a, a, a wondrous culture and they have a lot of history themselves, but uh, there's, there's more to do with uh, Florida's indigenous people, or Indians if you want to call them that, that goes back uh, thousands of years. And a lot of people don't know, know that, and they don't know a lot of the, the, the oral history that uh, sometimes some of us uh, historians or quasi-historians are, we're privy to when we talk with the native peoples and that type of thing. And I think it's important to to keep this history alive because if, if we don't as individuals, it's going to die out, and that would be uh, a shame. It really would. Benjamin Dehart's first CD, Warrior Bard, is an eclectic mix of original songs, operatic pieces, and traditional Celtic songs. His second CD, Taken Another Crack at It, has a Florida theme. There's a song on there that I entitled, um, All I Really Ever Wanted to Do Was Be a Cowboy. And it, it has to do with the fact that um, I was raised in a very uh, rural and small town in, in Florida and um, had the opportunity to, to work as a Florida cracker. I worked with cattle. My, my grandfather was a, a cowman and a farmer, and I, I, I worked for uh, a number of the cattle people in the area and um, I've always just been enamored and in love with the lifestyle of the cowboy whether that be our cowboys or cracker cow hunters in Florida or the western cowboys and uh, the responsible side of me uh, made me not uh, stay with that vocation as much as I wanted to. I, I, I moved away from my little rural hometown and moved to a bigger city to start working for a, you know a big corporation but uh, my heart was always still in the saddle so to speak and um, it's, it's just a song that, uh, that, that conveys that to people that uh, yeah you do what you have to do to make a living but uh, that might not necessarily be where your heart is and uh, you're your heart will will sing out, absolutely. Sitting here in traffic trying to keep from losing my mind Then my thoughts start to wander back to a simpler time Back to boots and spurs and cow whips Red buckles and bailing twine As time moves along my mind drifts back to the life I Come, I have roamed so far from that dream. 
another song that sticks out that I can think of on that album is a song called Papa Can You Hear? And it's a song that I wrote about my grandfather, and it's, it's really close to my heart, and it's a very personal song, and um, it has to do with um, his request that uh, whenever, he, uh, whenever he passed away that we have a bagpipe player playing Amazing Grace at the gravesite. And my grandfather, he was, um, he was not a Florida native. He moved to the Okeechobee area and settled there in the late 1820s, and he was... Um, he was a unique man, a unique individual. He was an alligator hunter and uh, a fisherman and a, a woodsman. He spent a lot of time in the Everglades, and he was also, the other part of his life, he was a primitive Baptist preacher. And uh, he's just a very eclectic man. Papa, can you hear the pipes? Can you hear the pipes a-playing? Some of us did not forget the words that you were saying You said when I'm gone Have amazing grace A-playing over me Papa, can you hear the pipes On the wind in Okeechobee South he came to build a life and preach the holy manner. Fishing was your livelihood and hunting alligators. Your thundering voice spread Bible verse on Sunday as a preacher. Papa, can you hear the pipes? Can you hear the pipes playing? Some of us did not forget words that you were saying You said when I'm gone have amazing grace of playing over me Papa can you hear the pipes on the wind and Okeechobee On a previous program we met Frederick Hitt, author of an award-winning series of novels about Native American culture in Florida, Wakiva Winter, Beyond the River of the Sun and The Last Tamuquin. Benjamin Dehart was inspired to write the song Tamuquin Eyes after reading Hitt's books. Absolutely. I read Fred's books and I got to meet him and uh, we struck up a rapport and a, and a, and a friendship and, and a kinship as well because as Fred said in his interview with you, um, there's history there with the Tamuquin Indians that's, it's, that's dying out and uh, Fred has felt moved to keep that history alive and I, was, I have felt moved to try to keep some of that history alive myself and after reading his books um, I was absolutely inspired to write, this, write the song that I did, Tamuquin Eyes, and it wasn't so much about well basically the, what I was thinking when I wrote the song is I wanted to paint in watercolor, so to speak, what the area was like where the Wakiva River and the Oklawaha River and the St. John's are come together. And at the time that Tamuquin Indians were living there, uh, before the Spanish showed up. In Fred's book, he focuses primarily on the interactions between uh, the Spanish missionaries and the um, uh, and the um, Jesuits and that type of thing. Uh, with the Tamuquins and how they affected them, and I wanted to go a step further and envision what their environment was like before the Spanish influence, and, and literally what it was like uh, to be seen through Tamuquin eyes. Along a winding course, 
Benjamin D. Hart's third CD, Another Side of Me, focuses exclusively on the plight of Florida's indigenous peoples. You would call it my Indian album, I guess. Uh, I um, am a Native American flute player, as well as I play uh, other styles of flute. So on this CD, you're not only going to find songs that I've written about uh, Florida's indigenous tribes and their, and their history, and there's some uh, songs that have to do with Western tribes' history, but you're also going to find several tracks that are strictly instrumental uh, where I perform on the Native American flute. So uh, it really strikes a chord with people that are um, uh, in touch with the, the Native American cultures. Between his musical performances at the Cowboy Heritage Festival at Osceola Heritage Park in Kissimmee, Benjamin DeHart joined a group of historic reenactors preserving Florida culture. Yes, to a certain degree, I, I participate, uh, do try to do some cow camp type uh, um, reenactments uh, that has to do with Florida's cow culture. I have done uh, uh, Seminole Wars as far as just a, a hangers-on or a musician and a little bit of Civil War, but... Um, I kind of have a tendency to stick towards uh, things that have to do with the, the cow culture because it's just uh, it's my love, whether it's uh, cow culture in the state of Florida or across the nation. Uh, it's uh, To me, the, the, the symbolism of the cowboy is something that will, will never die. I, I, I was talking to a friend uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about um, how things um, do not die out. And thing, we got to even talking about, uh, you know, uh, Chinese dynasties and how things are automatically recognized as being from a particular dynasty or something like that. And we got to thinking of the the, the icon, the image of the cowboy, and I'm, I'm fully convinced that several hundred years from now that someone, even if the, even if cow culture itself died out, someone could uh, dig up a spur or a saddle or a bit and instantly they would recognize what it was and what it came from. I think uh, the cowboy, the image of the cowboy is, is here to stay and uh, we do try to preserve it but um, I don't think it will ever really die out. I don't think it's possible. 
Benjamin Dehart, who writes and sings folk songs focusing on Florida history, is a popular performer at events like the Cowboy Heritage Festival. His upcoming CD is called Bittersweet Cowboy Reflections, and his website is www.thecrackertenor.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to purchase the latest books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming special events, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society to enjoy all the benefits that come with it, including the Florida Historical Quarterly and the Society Report. In the 1930s and 40s, tourists in Florida could purchase baby alligators at roadside stands. The small reptiles were placed in boxes for easier transport. Janie Gould has more. Think of old-time Florida souvenirs, and maybe you'll remember a painted coconut. Or how about an ashtray in the shape of the Sunshine State? But there were some keepsakes that were alive. Paul Hunter of Jensen Beach grew up on his grandparents' farm in Lake Worth. He milked the cows, hunted rabbits, and went to school barefoot until he was 12. His granddad was known as Palm Beach County's Strawberry King. The fruit was prized by tourists and locals alike. Paul had something to offer the winter visitors, too. Live baby alligators from the nearby drainage canal. I would go out at night with a flashlight, and when I would find a little baby alligator, I'd catch him and bring him home. And it was at the right time of the late tourist season where there were tourists that were interested in buying them. Alligators were hatching when? I think they start hatching in about February, March, in that time period, April. They would uh, make their nests during the late winter, and then they would hatch in about two or three weeks. Then there were little alligators around. How big were they when they came out of the shells? Oh, nine to ten inches long. Did you know where the nests were? Did you keep an eye on the nests? No, I never saw a nest. I didn't know where they were until I saw the little alligators in the water, swimming around in the shallow water where I could go in and get them. Did a mother alligator ever try to intervene? I don't know. From what I understand now, they're very protective. Why I didn't get caught, I don't know. I never was charged by one that I know of. You would have known. I think so. How did you catch the little baby alligators without getting scratched? You sneak up on them with your flashlight and blind them and grab them by the neck. Lift them out of the water. You hold on to them around the neck. They can't scratch you. They can't bite you. And at this point, they're, what, two feet long or so? No, they're a foot longer or less. They're a little bitty one. What did you do with them before you sold them? I just kept them in a little uh, tub at home and uh, maybe feed them some scraps or something now and then. And some tourists would come out to the farm. They heard that I had baby alligators. They would come out and they would give me five bucks for one. That was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Did any of the tourists ever tell you what they did with these alligators? Nope but I hear about alligators in the sewers in New York City. 
So you made $5 per alligator. That was more money than I could make for anything else for two or three months. And I usually give part of it to my mother. That was part of our income. That was good living. Here I'm a 12, 14 year old. I'd take my shotgun, my fishing pole, get in my boat and paddle down a canal and be gone for a couple of days. This is the way it lived. Come back with, what, rabbits, maybe? Maybe not bring anything back. Just been out in the woods having a good time. We shot some big rattlesnakes on the farm. Did you eat the meat? Yes, it was good. My mother was one of the kind of people that anything I would bring home and clean, she would cook. And I thought I had her stumped one time. I brought back home a great big old water moccasin that I actually caught while I was fishing. And I thought, well, I got her stumped now. When she sees what I'm cleaning, she's going to tell me to throw it away. Nope. She cooked it, but I had to take the first bite, and I couldn't do it, so then we threw it away. It smelled bad. Rattlesnake smells good. What does it taste like? It's a white meat and very soft and a little bit sweet. Do you remember a really big one? Yes. Uh, we had a path through the palmettos, and one day my mother hollered for me to bring the gun, and there was a rattlesnake that was all the way across the path and measured just over six feet long, and it had just swallowed a whole rabbit. So did you have rattlesnake meat that night? We did, but we didn't eat the rabbit. Paul Hunter left the farm and joined the Marines during World War II. He became a pilot and also served in Korea and Vietnam. Cheney Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Florida's leading industry in 1900 was not citrus or cattle or even tourism. It was cigars made in Key West and Tampa and other parts of the state. Bill Dudley talks with an historian of the cigar industry. At the cigar bar inside Tampa's Columbia restaurant, the emphasis is on conversation. The air itself may be a little smoky, but the atmosphere is congenial. One of the things that's still great is there are places that people can still get together and you can talk. American culture is so busy with itself that it has lost so much, and one of those things is the art of conversation. Glenn Westfall is professor of history and cultural anthropology at Hillsborough Community College near Tampa. If you were to ask me what's the single thing I like best about the cigar industry, I actually wouldn't say the great cigars. I would say the fact that it brought me into contact with people that I otherwise would never have had the opportunity to meet and uh, rekindled the old art of conversation. Westfall is the author of a forthcoming trilogy of books celebrating the cigar industry in Florida. It's a story that goes back over two centuries to a time when tobacco exported from the Spanish colony of Cuba was considered among the world's finest. 
In the early 1800s, Spain began allowing the Cubans to roll their own cigars, creating new industry and a new artisan class hungry for independence. Melinda Chavez is executive director of the Ybor City Museum Society. Within the cigar factories, you had the institution of the lector or the reader who read to the workers and who uh, therefore educated them and who gave them a strong sense of what was going on in their own community, of what was going on in the outside world, and of their own power. In 1868, a war of independence broke out in Cuba, which lasted nearly 10 years. That civil war led to a massive exodus of middle-class Cubans fleeing their country to Key West, to New York, to New Orleans, but primarily Key West, 90 miles away. And it was there that suddenly, on a small island 90 miles from Havana, thousands of Cuban refugees, skilled artisans in the making of cigars, created a virtual uh, economic renaissance for Key West. But many of these new immigrants were also active revolutionaries, dedicated to freedom for their home island. Westfall blames the Spanish government for the disastrous Key West fire of 1886. All evidence indicates that it was arson. They tried to burn Key West to the ground to destroy the basis of the uh, monies that were being collected for the revolution. But instead of ending the industry, it spread it across the rest of Florida. That's when Ebor and Ignacio Aya, who was in New York, started Ebor City. A number of factories moved to the Jacksonville area. You had small factories in Palatka and Pensacola and St. Augustine. By 1900, while the Cuban population represented about 20% of the population, it represented over 40% of the state's industrial wealth. You had over 200 million cigars rolled annually. It's a phenomenal figure. The Spanish sold raw tobacco to the Florida cigar makers, Westfall says, simply because they needed the money. In 1895, inspired by charismatic leader Jose Marti, war again erupted in Cuba. Three years later, the U.S. entered what we now call the Spanish-American War. Steamship and railroad magnate Henry B. Plant began bringing Cuban tobacco only to Tampa and Key West, crippling other Florida cigar towns, including the short-lived Marti City in Ocala. Still, by the time the popularity of Cuban cigars began to decline in the 1920s, the cigar companies had set a new standard for progressive industrial communities. Now, when you look at the Industrial Revolution in the North, tenement houses, overcrowded conditions where the bosses controlled everything, Florida really uh, has never been given credit for the fact that it had the truly first successful model industrial communities. Not only did the workers own their homes, but they also owned the grocery stores, the hardware stores. You had private enterprise. And all of this in Cuban exile communities. The cigar industry provided the economic basis for a cultural legacy still celebrated in Florida communities like Ybor City. We had, uh, of course, the Spanish people, uh, the factory owners for the most part, but we also had the black and white Cubans, we had Sicilians, we had Romanian Jews, we had Germans, and all of these people, you know, created this culture out of that mix. And it really is quite fascinating. For Glenn Westfall, the romance of a fine Cuban cigar lives on in the large body of fantastic and colorful label art that's been preserved in private and public collections 
like the Ybor City State Museum. Images of factories, of people, of Cuban uh, gala events, all which were cigar labels, country scenes, home scenes, cockfights, dances. It's, it's one of the most marvelous visual images of the, the height of Cuban culture, the romance of the culture. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, check out our website at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.